This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Wishing you all a grounded and connected Earth Day. Pretty exciting to be able to celebrate with all of you. Welcome to our audience. And um, wow, what an honor, what an honor. I'm really excited to be here with you today. And um, I love the film, it's so beautiful. And we're just gonna get right into it. David, tell us a little bit about how this film uh, came into being. What were some of the initial challenges and how did the invitation come to you to uh, get this film project started? Well, it's, it's actually a rather interesting story. Uh, the, 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 uh, the entire project start started as a film idea. I wanted to make a documentary about the changing Arctic. Uh, and I reached out to uh, 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 the people at the University of Rhode Island Inner Space Center because I knew that they had experience doing live broadcasts from sea. And I thought, well, if we're going to be in the Arctic, let's do live broadcasts. Uh, they said, well, they didn't want to just join a documentary. They want, you know, that they would be engaged if it was also a science project. So uh, we got the National Science Foundation involved. It became a, a, a bona fide uh, research expedition. Uh, there, there was a great interest in having uh, undergraduate uh, and graduate students involved uh, as well. So, you know, the seed of an idea for a documentary uh, grew into a very ambitious science project uh, that, but that had a lot of humanities involved with it. So, uh, so that's how it all came together. And it took a long time. Uh, I mean, I was thinking about this back in 2014. I think we were funded in 2016. As you can see from the film, we had some setbacks. We had a ship that went aground. Uh, it, it, you know, it, it, it took a lot of effort. Uh, and there, there were two, two lessons in that. Um, a, uh, a maritime historian uh, who really knows the Arctic told me that no Arctic expedition ever went off flawlessly without false starts. So that was encouraging. And it was a good, it was a good lesson. I mean, places that are difficult like the Arctic, um, you know, you just don't get up there and work up there easily. And the second lesson I think is, is just the, you know, the virtue of patience. We, we waited, the first couple ships didn't work out. And in the end, the, uh, the Swedish icebreaker Odin was the best possible uh, vessel to work from. And I think the, the, the entire expedition, all aspects of it, accomplished far more uh, than if we had gone on a sailing vessel three years earlier and so forth. I was worried that the, the immediacy of, of the melting Arctic was going to fade. You know, I said, well, gosh, you know, 2016 is when we need to do it. Well, of course, more Arctic has melted every year since the project started, uh, the Greenland ice cap included. And it, the, the issue of the melting Arctic uh, has become ever more important. So the timing was good, actually. Thank you very much. Um, I love, this is actually really cool that we're able to have you guys here. I mean, this is one of the benefits of COVID, right? Like we can pull people in from all around the world and have these remote events. Um, Karina, I'm, I'm curious about your work and particularly around like social media and all the outreach events that took place from the ship and kind of the media around the documentary film. And if you could fold in a little bit about your work, that what you were doing on a kind of everyday day-to-day basis and 
how that fo folded into your blogging and your outreach and what, what happened on, around all of that. Absolutely. So hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Corona. So I was an undergraduate at the time uh, when I participated in the expedition. I'm now a graduate student. It was my first research experience and, um, you know, going into the Arctic, this really remote region was so exciting. It was so um, beautiful that, you know, I immediately wanted to, you know, share this with everyone right after and start going into social media for that. But during the expedition on board, we were able to broadcast live uh, broadcasts to different museums. So like the Smithsonian, the Alaska Sea Life Center and more. Um, during these broadcasts were uh, awesome. The setup and getting everything together while you're in the Arctic and you're outside freezing um, and sharing this incredible moment with everyone was phenomenal. And I was part of the Microscopic Communities uh, Project. So we were looking at phytoplankton and zooplankton in the Arctic regions. So being able to work with um, all these different scientists, all these different undergraduate students who are wanting to become scientists and going on that expedition and saying, hey, I am a scientist. And to project that to the community and to outreach um, was incredible to you know, inspire younger generations and future generations, all of the above, every generation, that this climate change that is occurring in the Arctic region and the Arctic region itself is very vital to all of us. It is the refrigerator. And once you unplug it, you can't really necessarily plug it back in. Hmm. Yeah, thank you. Um, and this one, um, over to you, Hester. And I kind of would like this one to go around the panel and start to open up a little bit more of a discussion. Um, you know, you say in the film, it's heartbreaking and enraging. And I know that many of my students are feeling this uh, climate change anxiety. And um, I just wondering what kind of, what, well, first of all, what was your experience of, about that? And what kind of guidance can you offer to our audience and students who are feeling this? Well, one of the, the most eye-opening aspects of the expedition for me, besides my own research and intellectual um, and broader interests in the region and in thinking about climate, was seeing how Karenna, as you can already see, and the other students who are all brilliant and dedicated um, and who immediately bonded with the two Inuit early career researchers who were on our expedition as well, thanks to Dave's vision of bringing in members of this program, Akarvik, that trains younger Inuit early career scientists to both represent the science that has always happened in the region, as Mia Otokiak says in the film, the Inuit are the original Arctic scientists, climate scientists, um, and seeing how the students all, and, and Mia and Gibson themselves are student age, um, they're all the same generation. And what was incredible to me um, as somebody who is not of that generation, um, alas, anymore, I mean, in conversation with some of the people who are more of my age on the ship, our interest in climate was really focused on a lot of the kind of corporate and broader state scale issues that are driving climate change. And what was remarkable about this body of students in particular was how focused they were not just on those issues, but also on ecological justice um, and thinking of how the various intersections of race and ethnicity and community are also driving these issues which has been an education for me in recent years in teaching about such topics. 
and recognizing how the environmentalism that I first started studying a couple of decades ago has really shifted to be focused much more on matters of ecological justice. And so that was really visible um, to me in the way the students spoke with each other on the ship and in thinking of the impact of this film and the impact of the expedition on the lives of these students in particular afterwards. So that, that was the moment I didn't expect and was a real revelation to me. David, did you have any transformation around this? What, what did you go into feeling and, and how did you leave? Yeah, well, I guess I was uh, uh, greatly gratified that, that a lot of the ideas that I had uh, were able to, to be executed. Um, I didn't want this to be a documentary about a, a science expedition. Uh, they tend to be c- kind of dry and so forth. And to, to, to reach a broad public about a topic like this, I felt that, that the documentary had to be all-inclusive. It, it had to deal with the geopolitics, the indigenous people, the wildlife that was being affected, uh, the experiences, the, the, the eye-opening experiences of these students that had never been there, um, and, uh, and, and, and look at it uh, in a humanistic view, not just a science. And, you know, I, I had the good fortune of finding Hester who, you know, is a literary scholar who's been spending, you know, much of her career studying uh, the Arctic and indigenous peoples and so forth. And I just felt that it was going to be a richer film experience to tell the story of the change in the Arctic from all of these perspectives. And so I guess for me, it was just hugely gratifying that, um, uh, that we were able to, to document that and, and, and get that across. Um, and I, I think it was the vision of the University of Rhode Island, really, to, to make this a, a, a project that involved so many undergraduate students. Uh, as, as you know, probably, Ian, uh, you know, uh, you're usually a bona fide scientist before you can get on one of these high-priced uh, research uh, trips. And to be able to take 28 uh, undergraduate and graduate students and, and really in, involve them in, in real-world science and, and to experience a place like the Arctic it's going to impact them for the rest of their lives. And they're the ones that are going to be making the decisions and doing the research and, uh, and, and, you know, driving things going forward. So it was great that we could have so many students involved. Mm, lovely. Corona. How about you? I mean, is that what, first of all, was that a real thing is like climate change anxiety. Is that real? Was it present on the ship? Um, how are you navigating that from, from your perspective? Absolutely. When I first got to the Arctic, you know, you see these Google images of it, but when you're actually there, it's just one of those moments where you're like, I don't want to see this go away. I don't want to think of a future without this. And, you know, down the road, future generations, I want them to be able to experience this. I want us to continue to experience the Arctic and all of the important species that are there and really important ecosystem um, that's relevant to us dearly. So the climate anxiety is is definitely real. And when you come back, when I personally for me, when I came back from that Arctic, um, you know, region, I you know think about it almost every day because it's it's a really big problem that we're having of climate change. And you know, among all the other problems that we may have in the world, this is one that we all really should you know think about as well. Like it needs to be on our minds in order to advocate and create that awareness that this region can no longer exist if we don't do anything about it. And that's why, you know, being so um, 
into the topic and you know every day what I recommend is to learn something new about the Arctic region learn something new about climate change make those choices where you can spend one minute and looking up different research articles or even just different inspiring talks about climate change to start getting that knowledge of why this region is so important and you know what does our future look like without it and unfortunately we do have to start thinking about that because the region is melting uh, we, we do have to start thinking about this region that may no longer exist in the future and how is that going to impact the species how is that going to impact us how is it going to impact communities that are in those Arctic regions that are going to experience it firsthand? So these are all the different type of questions that we need to be thinking about and asking and going into research to start resolving these issues or making more sustainable choices where we can start helping. Wonderful. So I, I love the central message in this film and the work that you guys do about youth engagement and empowerment, right? And we often go that the future is, um, you know, in the youth's hands, but it's not really true because we're all working together here. And just on this panel, we're working together. And I think, at least for me, often it's, it's challenging to think about how to work with youth. And I think you guys have gone through an incredible experience. And I just was wondering if you could pass on to educators and other people who want to work with youth, what are some um, ways and advice that you may have or invitations that help for that collaboration to take place? It's tough. I'm going to, I'm going to jump in here. Um, I, I think about this a lot. One of the um, ironies that those of us who teach in universities have is that we get older, but our students stay the same age, right? The, our relationship as teachers over the years is changes. My references are out of date. I can't keep up. Um, but the the imperatives that each generation brings to that um, that moment are are different. And another thing that was incredibly striking to me about our experience in the Arctic as part of this project was seeing how, as Karen is describing here, the impacts of ice loss, which are often reported in in the south in the lower 48 in the u.s and throughout the temperate world war generally are often reported without a sense of how they impact the people who are in the arctic now um, it becomes more of a kind of global question and of course it's a cultural problem for the residents of the north as much as it is a scientist as, as a climate problem um, th that has cultural effects and so the imperative to draw those kinds of generational and cultural connections, I think is, um, was a lot more visible to me in listening to, again, Mia and Gibson, the two Inuit researchers who were on our expedition, talking about their family relations, that elder knowledge is incredibly valued, but elder knowledge of climate is not as relevant as it used to be because climate has changed so quickly. Um, and they both spoke about the cultural effects of that loss of knowledge and how they feel it um, as, again, something that has a, a, an urgency on the day-to-day -day level, but on a kind of broader transcultural and transgenerational level. And I don't think that that's a sense that I had growing up as a white kid in New Jersey, that kind of generational knowledge was not part of my um, it might have been a part of my immediate family structure, but it was less of a cultural structure. And so I think that that, I, I don't know, I wish I knew how to teach that or how to better communicate that, but experiencing and just seeing that even in the glimpse that we had 
on this expedition was incredibly instructive and powerful. I was not involved in the, uh, the recruitment of the students, but I'm, I'm somewhat aware of the process. And, you know, they were reaching out to uh, mostly uh, students that have uh, marine studies interests. Uh, and it was a highly competitive uh, uh, vetting. Uh, was, uh, there were a lot of applicants. It was a, it was a rigorous vetting process. And clearly, the, the candidates that, that won and, and got, out, got on, the, on the vessel were highly motivated. And I think the answer is you give young people opportunities and they're going to grab it. And, and I think the, it, 100% of the participation of the students on this vessel, they were highly motivated from the beginning and they were highly motivated uh, throughout the project. And I think you give an opportunity to a highly motivated uh, student and they're going to they're run with it. And it was interesting because we interviewed the captain of the ship and he said, well, I saw all these young kids coming aboard, you know, and I, I, I was worried, you know, you know, are they going to spend all their time in the sauna, you know, or, or doing this or that. Uh, and he was very impressed with, with them, as was our chief scientist um, uh, from the University of Rhode Island. Uh, he had never had that many young students working under them, and it was rigorous. It was 24-7. Uh, the, the, these students had night shifts. They were doing these satellite broadcasts by day. They had a lot of responsibilities, and uh, they, they, uh, they never faltered. So I think, uh, you know, you put, you put a good idea in front, in front of a motivated student, and they're going to they're gonna take off. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with um, David Hester. Giving those opportunities and, you know, having that there available is like that jumping point where you're motivated. And for my personal experience, every single day that I once find, found out about the opportunity to go to the Arctic through my school, I literally thought about it every single day, hoping I would get in. And um, I remember just like every time I would drive or, you know, anytime I would go to the beach and like look at the ocean, like I really wanna see the ocean in the Arctic. I really wanna be there. Like I'm visualizing myself there and getting that congratulations email was like life-changing completely life-changing. That research experience was amazing to me. And it's the reason why I'm in grad school now. I was pursuing my undergrad uh, first generation. No one in my family has ever gone to college. And this research trip gave me that navigation and that experience to connect with other students, other people that were diverse. Having that diversity on the trip was so inclusive to me. Um, coming from a Hispanic um, coming from like that I'm Hispanic, but um, yeah, it was just so incredible to make those connections with other students that were like me and to see that, you know, science is so prevalent in, in them as well, just as I have also felt it. So that trip gave us an opportunity to make those connections where we're all still talking today. We're all still remembering the trip as if it was yesterday. And I think and in, in now with COVID, um, you know, things have changed, right? You can't really take someone, you know, take a, a school field trip to the Arctic and stuff. But I think if you start giving these seeds to the students and saying, here's, here's an idea, let's see how you make it grow and giving them guidance and mentorship to introduce them to topics that they may not think of. It, it really does, um, you know, it does fall on the educator and, you know, as educators, we have so many responsibilities as well, uh, already. So, um, you know, just showing that you're passionate about a topic and showing that to the students can be very motivating. And that can be that seed 
that can get them to, you know, like me, I'm in grad school now. And it was because of this research opportunity. I don't think I would have pursued graduate school if I didn't go on this research trip. Wow. Yeah. Thank you very much. That, those are great answers. Um, there's a really poignant part in the film where we're talking about traditional knowledge and science uh, um, need to work together. And, and there's one line in particular that really stuck out to me, which was, it's not just polar bears that live here. I was wondering if you guys would unpack that a little bit for me. Um, maybe starting with, uh, with you, Hester. Sure. Um, the, the polar bear, the image of the polar bear on the vanishing ice floe has become the cliche of climate change. And it's a convenient one. Polar, bear, uh, polar bears are what is called a charismatic megafauna. Um, they attract the attention much more than the phytoplankton um, that the, the microbiology teams are working with um, would do so. It makes sense that those are the images, but those images also erase the presence, the ongoing multi thousands of years presence of indigenous people of the North. And it serves a kind of function. Um, I've been thinking about this in my own recent work. My original field of training is 19th century American literature and literary history. And there, and I appreciated very much Emily's land acknowledgement at the beginning of this session. And the reason, um, one of the reasons why more scholars are doing these kinds of land acknowledgements is not just because of the ongoing fact of the stolen land that we occupy, that I sit on in central Pennsylvania, but to remind people that indigenous people are still here. They're not gone. In the 19th century, there was a myth of the vanishing native, um, which is a myth that was designed to basically erase the genocidal histories here. And so there's some ways in which it seems to me that there's a rhyme between picturing polar bears in the North versus the actual indigenous inhabitants, Inuit, Yupik, um, Sami, um, across the, the Northern reaches as a way of um, trying to, again, whether mindfully or not, um, or mindlessly or not really, to kind of erase that historical presence, to consign indigenous people to a past rather than asserting their presence and their futurity here as well. And so I think the getting beyond the polar bear in that sense is particularly important um, because it's not just standing alongside the human population here as well. It, it can be a kind of visual replacement. Yeah, and to, to add in on that, um, you know, when you think about uh, climate change in the Arctic, like Hester said, you Im immediately you think about those polar bears. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, it would be interesting if, you know, instead of seeing that polar bear, what if you saw a picture of yourself saying, hey, this is going to affect you? How would that change the dynamic, right? So you have to kind of think of it in that way, because it will affect all of us. And, you know, there's more than just the polar bears. There's those communities that, like Nunavut, that are close to those regions that are going to be affected those are humans we're all going to be affected by this and you know if you don't if you don't know about plankton they're very very vital to our ecosystem in the ocean they're at the the top of that food base where a lot of the whales eat the zooplankton and then there's phytoplankton that do photosynthesis and if those species are affected then that whole food base web is also going to be impacted um you know you could start seeing lower distributions of plankton around, or you may see lower distributions of fish. What do we eat? Some of us eat fish, right? Like, how is that going to affect other species that eat fish, right? So I think it's really important to think about 
you know, polar bears are very, very important to an endangered species. And that could also be us in the future of us being, you know, endangered in, in that type of way. Hmm. There's an aspect to the polar bears that are, is unrelated that I'd just like to throw out. Um, you know, as filmmakers, you sometimes find yourself in, in dangerous situations and you have to be mindful or whatever. <clears throat> this was the first environment that we could never set foot on land without an armed guard next to us. Um, you, you know, the polar bears are still at the top of the food chain up there and uh, they can come from anywhere and, and they're, they can be aggressive. So the helicopters had to fly a survey over an area before they, we, they put us down. If it was just the film crew, there would be at least one armed guard with us. And then when the students went ashore, there were like, you know, three armed guards, you know, <laughs> keeping an eye out. And, you know, you're you're the only person on this spit of land or this island. And, and to think that you've got to have people with binoculars and long rifles uh, to be looking over your shoulder at all times. It was a it was an interesting experience. Mm. Yeah, you sort of got right into the, my next question, David, which is, um, yeah, these, the, this is a, a film and media studies program. So we're always keen to learn more about filmmaking. And so there's some really beautiful drone footage in this. I was wondering if you could tell us um, some uh, behind the scenes stories uh, around capturing this film. Yeah, uh, well, um, you know, I, I knew that we were going to have a limited amount of time to do an awful lot. And, you know, with the science and the ship operations and the student activities. So uh, it was a five-person film crew and there were two cameramen because they, I just felt that we, we just needed two cameras to be able to, to, to you know, uh, do these different things that sometimes were happening simultaneously. The sun never set. So there were activities that were going on around the clock as well. Um, and, um, yeah, well, I, one of our, our cameramen, our, actually our director of photography, uh, Duncan, uh, who happens to be my son. It's, it's uh, not really nepotism. Uh, he's totally qualified, uh, is, is a very talented uh, 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 drone operator. And what a perfect environment to operate a drone. I mean, those big perspectives of the sea and being able to see the, the ship from Wolfboard and so forth. Um, but being so high north, uh, the, uh, the, the, the magnetic north, would screw up the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the internal compass of the uh, drone and GPS was a little squirrely and we were on a big iron deck. And, you know, you, you, we learned things like you can't take the, dr the drone cannot take off from an iron deck because it hasn't gotten its coordinates or whatever. It's messed up by the, uh, the magnetism of the iron deck. So every time they, we launched a drone, you had to hold it over your head and, kind of rotated around until it got its bearings and then, then it took off. So, um, but, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you're, you know, what, what a challenge operating the Arctic. And I, I've got to say the ship was so comfortable. The food was so good. Helicopters would take us ashore. I mean, I'd, I'd like to say that there was a lot of hardship and, and, and so forth, but it was really a very comfortable platform to work from. And, um, and I think we were able to accomplish so much, because we, because of, it was so effective, the, the helicopters could get, get us ashore quickly. Uh, we had two cameras running and so forth. So, uh, uh, you know, it was it was uh, it was around the clock, but but uh, you know, well worth it. And I think it's reflected in the film. 
Um, Hester, this is for you, but maybe for all of you. Um, from the film, it says uh, adapt, um, as people have always adapted. Um, and how are we adapting, right? Um, especially uh, the young people who experienced this expedition. Uh, what are you observing and sort of tying it back to this traditional intergenerational passing of knowledge? Um, how is that happening um, globally and within, and also within the ship and the expedition? You're giving me all the really tough. I, I told you I had some duties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. So, um, you know, adaptation from a biological perspective, which I have zero expertise in, is something that usually happens over incredibly long periods of time, right? It's rare to have those adaptations show up. They may even happen over a generation or two, but as an immediate process, it doesn't really work that way. And so one of the things that was also very striking about um, being in the Arctic and what for me, for my own personal interests was the most striking was seeing how stretches of time that are no longer visible in my own backyard where the evidence of time that I see on the landscape can be tracked within a hundred years, maybe 200 years at most. Whereas in the Arctic, you're seeing simultaneous images and detritus and relics and visual cues that go back tens of thousands of years. Um, and they're all present in that same spot in a way that is harder to see in central Pennsylvania for one, and in many of the places in the US, many of the places that most of us who live in the US go to. And so that process of adaptation is taking place on very different scales. And those who talk about the Anthropocene, this period, this epoch of the impact of human life on planetary timescales, um, speak of a great acceleration, um, which is something that's happened within um, mo my lifetime, going back to the mid 20th century. Um, and that acceleration is harder to communicate, I think, to younger people as well, because the acceleration of the time between until your 20s feels very different than it does um, coming later. Um, so to, to think about how to frame those kinds of adaptation, I think it's really hard for humans to encompass, keep all those timescales in mind at the same time. Um, and the whether visualizing it through the kind of media production that Dave has done here with this film or visualizing it through the incredibly striking slide that was widely, it was visible in the film of the microplastics in the ice, um, thinking about how the scales of being um, can take place on different, in different registers, different visual registers, different storytelling registers, I'm trying to find commensurate scales that um, can put into conversation timelines that don't necessarily logically make sense. Um, you know, I was raised thinking of linear time as a progressive forward moving thing. I, I no longer believe that. And I don't think that a lot of um, students and younger generations today have a sense of that as well, as much as I child of boomers, Generation X did. I, I think that younger generations have not had that experience. And so I think it makes it maybe a little bit easier to think about adaptation when there's no longer an expectation that things are just going to keep getting better. Because I don't think that people believe that now. 
Yeah, yeah. Karan, I'd like to yeah, pass that to you. And I mean, I know my daughter is like, she's going vegan. Like there's all this stuff coming at me and I'm learning a lot from, from uh, my children and young people on how to adapt. Um, and so curious uh, about what, what you have to say. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when I think of adaptation, you know, I think about all these different species that we have seen adapt to many different situations. I feel like our generation is almost not necessarily adapting to the idea of, you know, the Arctic or the climate change um, is going to be super severe. I, I'm seeing more of a fight that we're going to make these choices to not let this happen. So making more sustainable choices. Um, I've seen a lot of different social media outputs spreading information like TikTok, right? That's like a really famous one that I'm not too quite familiar with either. So that's kind of getting past me now. <laughs> so I feel like I'm getting a little bit older. <laughs> but, um, you know, I've seen a lot of different social media platforms, especially today. It was lovely to wake up and open up my phone and everyone's talking about climate change. And it's awesome. You know, it's really awesome to see that. Whereas, you know, typical other days, you may not see that. So I feel like all of our all of the generations are starting to realize that yes this this is a problem and again i i have i have to fight with the word adapt because i i don't want to you know have a future where there's no arctic i don't want to adapt to that occurring i don't want to see that plan you know i don't want to see that ahead of our time it's more of a fight right now it's more of you know taking action and doing things and every day making choices that can help our earth and making more sustainable choices. Um, personally, for me, when finding about the microplastics, that had an impact on myself. I was looking at my body washes and everything and making sure that, you know, there's these particles in body wash. They may, you know, some body washes targeted to younger generations, like kids may have like sparkles and glitter. But in fact, that sparkles and glitter, there's some plastics that are in the, that glitter form. There's some that are biodegradable, biodegradable now. But seeing those choices is, um, you know, inspiring and, you know, to stray away from buying products that uh, have a lot of plastic usage when it's just not completely necessary. Um, buying from smaller companies that do more sustainable practices, even if it's a little bit more pricey, it's it's not a big jump of a price. It's it's a lot better. And if we start to shift to that type of, um, you know, sustainable shopping, it's going to be so normal and relevant that it won't be, you know, part of that expense as anymore. We just need to make that shift mm -hmm. and, you know, more sustainable choices where you can buy biodegradable spoons, you know, if, if you need to, or reusable spoons. If you go out and you get takeout or something, you know, refuse to get those plastics because it takes thousands of years for those to even, you know, break apart. Um, and I'm seeing more products being produced where, like, say, example, I've seen an ad recently about, um, like sustainable uh, laundry detergent where it's just in a cardboard box, then right after you can just put the cardboard box into uh, the dirt and it'll degrade, uh, you know? So it's it's really good to see those type of things. And I'm seeing it more compared to when I was younger. I don't know if when, you know, I was younger, it wasn't really cell phones and stuff, um, but I am definitely seeing, you know, I'm seeing a lot more hard work from everyone. And I think that we need to, you know, start to think about this is a really complex problem, but by making those decisions to make these smaller choices makes a huge impact in the long run. And just looking at your different sustainable choices. Mm, I love that. Yeah, I'm 
uh, I struggle as a parent um, with my children and screens, but I also recognize that these consumer behaviors and social media can really shift huge markets. And additionally, like my 16 year old is, has organized a climate strike in LA for tomorrow. I'm just putting it out there. If anybody's in LA 12 to two, uh, and, and it's social media that really allows it to happen. She's able to reach out to producers and all sorts of interesting people via Instagram and say, come on down to my climate strike. And I noticed with her, you know, her consumer behavior is very influenced by media. And um, you, you guys are doing a pretty good job preempting the questions. Um, Ivor John had a question about the microplastics. So, um, and, and, but, 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 to, but to you, David, and to the group, how are um, movies like this? But I would also say, like, there was a lot more than just the movie. How are this informing the community about the importance of, of microplastics? And, yeah, first of all, and I want to, you know, like, the, it's the, the, the image that sticks out to me most powerfully from this film are those slides with the microplastics and, and, and also the microorganisms. And so, David, maybe talk a little bit about the, the, the filmmaking process to gather those um, and then open it up to how do we create um, an influence behavior around this microplastics issue? Right. Well, I, you know, uh, my whole approach with the film was not to make it an advocacy film. I wasn't, I didn't intend to preach. I wanted Hester to bring a humanistic view to, to, to the work that we were doing in the history of the Arctic. Uh, Ed Struzik was an was a, a, a journalist with 30 years experience in the Arctic. I wanted to document the real experiences uh, of, of bona fide, you know, people uh, as they experienced the Arctic. So the, the microplastics, uh, we weren't looking for it. Uh, it, 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 came, it came in by surprise. Uh, and it became a very big story because microplastics had been documented in the mid-Arctic and the lower Arctic, uh, but this was the first time that it had been documented in the high Arctic. And so to be able to document, you know, it happening in real time and the genuine uh, reactions to the scientists upon seeing it, it just makes it real. It makes it palpable. It makes it emotional. And I think that's the way that these films need to speak to people on, a, on an emotional level and, and a genuine level. Uh, you know, I, I didn't want to talk about plastics in the Arctic. We found it, and we, and we told the story of how it was found. So to, to answer your, your, uh, your viewer's question, I, I think these films can be very important because they're reaching a lot of people that may not know anything about the Arctic, may not think that climate change in the Arctic is affecting them. Uh, and when they see a story like this and when they see, you know, a place as pristine and remote as, as, as the high Arctic and their plastics, I, I, think, I think it helps, uh, you know, convey, convey the realities of this world. Especially when one of the, the a really striking thing to me as we were sailing through Lancaster Sound and through the various passages is you don't see any evidence of human infrastructure outside of the towns in Nunavut that the government of Canada compelled Inuit to move to in the mid 20th century. So there's no power lines in between these towns. There are no roads. There's no visible evidence whatsoever of human life. And the even on a ship like the Odin, which the Swedish call probably the best icebreaker in the world, which they confess meant that it is 
absolutely the best icebreaker in the world. Um, the Swedes are incredible. Uh, but one of the things that, um, it, no matter how great the technology on the ship was, it was a challenge sometimes to find a signal, to do the broadcasts. Um, Dave's already described the, the, the issue sometimes of flying the drone. And so here we are in a place that is hard to reach in the previous year when the ship ran aground, rescue was a day away. It was what, 14 hours of waiting for rescue. Um, so this is a place that human processes in a lot of ways don't seem like they can touch. And yet here are microplastics in the water, whether they're from body washes, whether they're from particles from other kind of commercial uses, it's sneaking in in ways that are not as visible. Like you can't see a power line or a, a garbage dump, but the plastic is far, far more alarming and far more pervasive than those other larger scale human processes. And that was shocking to me. Yeah, I love what you said earlier, Corinna, about like looking up and not seeing a polar bear, but seeing yourself. Because if it's up there, guess what? It's all around us, right? And um, and just checking ourselves on what we're wearing and how we're washing and checking the ingredients on everything. Um, this is this is these are and here's my doozy of a question that follows into that. Um, this maybe if um, let me just get to it. Um, if we were to imagine a world in which policy and governments list, listened and acted from the science particularly the science that was gathered on this expedition, what might we see and experience and what sacrifices might we need to prepare for? That's a tough one. Yeah, Rena, I'm going I'm to start with you. Gosh, there's so much to unpack there. Um, you know, if, if these changes were on a government and political scale, it would be really nice <laughs> um, to see that a lot more often um you know oh goodness yeah there's just if if that could happen it would be you know great and some of those type of sacrifices i immediately think of is kind of like funding but i'm going to toss it to hester because that that is that is a that is a lot to unpack in one question so by way of analogy i've had the the privilege of traveling to other countries for research and for other travels and um, in most other places in the world other than the U.S. have robust public transportation systems that are supported by their governments. Um, they have measures in place that are operating at every level of government and society that create the kind of culture changes that make the idea of every adult individual having their own private car, for example, is absurd in most other contexts. And it's sustainable in those ways because the transportation exists. Um, until the infrastructure exists in the United States to support me methods of whether it's transportation or other forms of processes, um, the culture change is not gonna come. Culture change is very difficult in any circumstance in a country like this one. I think it's especially difficult. Um, but the kinds of the, the sense of sacrifice that um, is often used as the rhetoric in these conversations, um, I, I think is, um, is, is one that is hard to translate, I think, for 
those who um, I, I forgot where I started that sentence, but the, the the kind of change that I think people could adapt to pretty easily um, makes for an actually very pleasant and livable life. <laughs> there's there's no kind of grotesque sacrifices that are involved in creating these getting corporate money out of issues like energy and the environment for one. Um, having that kind of corporate money not supporting political candidates who, as I drive around central Pennsylvania, tell us that um, coal saves American jobs. Um, it doesn't say what else that coal does to American lives on these, in this kind of rhetoric. Um, so I think that um, more people could understand or could come to understand how little disruption there is in making these kinds of large-scale changes and how very pleasant it is to spend an hour on a train rather than an hour sitting alone in a car, hmm. where at least you could read, right? And and as far as sacrifices, I mean, I, I let's look at uh, uh, the none of it government and Canada. We didn't get into it in the film, but uh, Canada is respecting the none of it people now. They are listening to them. They are working together. Um, uh, we had to go through endless permits for the ship to operate in none of it waters for us to film on land there. Uh, so they are very proactive in protecting their own environment. Uh, in fact, in the last couple of years, the largest uh, marine sanctuary in all of Northern Canada was established right in Lancaster Sound. Uh, they're worried about uh, noise pollution from ships interfering with the marine mammals and so forth. So while there are still plenty of tough decisions to make and, and, and uh, hard choices to make, uh, you can see that, that there are positive, there are positive uh, lights out there. And in Canada, at least in, in the northern Canada, uh, there are some positive stories that are beginning to emerge uh, as be- people become aware. Yeah, I love that. I mean, you know, the the root of the word sacrifice is, is sacré in French, which is sacred. So it kind of mm-hmm. loops back into this traditional knowledge and traditional ways of being. And um, we're starting to see a bit of a theme here. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I have a question from the audience. Um, we'd love to hear more about the experience in Pond Inlet. How did your experience visiting an Inuit village affect your understanding of the region? Um, I'll go ahead and take that one. So um, going to Pond Inlet was an incredible experience. Um, You know, being able to go into the waters that they get to see every day was very special. Um, It felt very inviting and, you know, respecting their land as well when we first landed and making sure that we're not throwing trash anywhere. We're making sure that we know the cultural norms for them, making that understanding and also, you know, sharing why we're, you know, they could see our ship. So we're sharing, you know, this is why we're here and sharing, you know, the science and having their input into like, oh, you know, we know about this X, Y, and Z and sharing stories. Um, Mia, like uh, the Inuit student that participated, me and her became very close where she shared some stories about how, you know, um, the, the cultural knowledge that her, you know, um, ancestors knew is kind of starting to change with that climate change. And you just really start to put that into perspective and it becomes a lot more personable when you hear these stories from these communities, because it's like, wow, like they are going to be impacted first and they are going to experience it. Um, and, you know, I don't want that to happen. None of us really want that to happen. And it's just, you know, kind of thinking again, 
going to Pond Inlet and knowing that there's different weather patterns now or seeing Mia post, you know, today the weather is this. And then, you know, mm -hmm. th then the next day it's, oh, it's a lot warmer, you know? So it's still having that connections, uh, thankfully to social media that, you know, Pond Inlet is a region that is there that is so vital and a, a great community. So landing there and being able to share our science and them being able to share their culture and having these conversations was incredible. And I think I think that's an important lesson. Um, I mean, it was a goal of the film. Uh, uh, we very easily could have not gone ashore anywhere, not visited any Inuit community. Um, but as I had a hand in planning the itinerary and very much wanted everybody, the students, the scientists, to engage with this Inuit community. And, you know, traditionally, you know, scientists from afar would come and they wouldn't consult with the, with the Inuit. Uh, and more, now more than ever, I think that is, there's the realization that you have to work together because their local knowledge is so vital and you have to be respectful of it. You're doing research in their waters. Um, it just made sense. And I think it was very rewarding for everybody that we did carve out a couple days to, uh, to have that experience. It was amazing to see too that, um, so through the course of my research and my scholarship, um, I knew that communities like Pond Inlet had only been established by the Canadian government again in the mid 20th century. Um, the various hamlets across Nunavut are all a relatively recent concentration. And that has created some opportunities, has created a lot of issues and problems. Um, there's, you know, there's tension in these communities about what that relatively recent legacy has been. And so I, when I was had the opportunity, thanks to Dave had set up for us a kind of town-wide picnic um, barbecue. Um, so we were all able to talk to community members and run around with the kids um, in the community. And I kept asking people what their favorite thing to do for fun was, or what their favorite thing about living in Pond Inlet was. And we were across the water from a spectacular glacier. There are mountains all around. It's absolutely gorgeous. And most of the people I talked to said, oh, I just want to go camping. I, I don't care about the view. One said, I hate it here. I just want to be out on the land. I just want to go camping, which in Inuit culture is more than just a kind of recreational camping. It's an extended way to reconnect with elders, to practice traditional life ways, to live off what's called country food, seal, caribou. Um, and so the tension between this spectacular location and the community that it offered in having gathering, I think there's about 1600 people who live in Pond Inlet versus the desire to be out camping and out on the land um, was really striking um, in this kind of concentrated community to have that kind of outward vision too. Mm. Incredible answers. Thank you. Um, uh, Jesse Goldstein asks, um, what was the estimated carbon footprint of the expedition and or movie? And was there steps uh, taken during uh, to operate more sustainably? Ooh, that, that is a tough one. And, um, uh, you know, I can honestly say that I did not address that directly. Um, uh, you know, I don't know uh, the carbon footprint of, of the film crew, uh, the ship certainly was was burning, uh, you know, uh, uh, oil fuel. Um, any of the ships that go through, you know, all these cruise ships and research vessels uh, are are burning uh, fossil fuels. 
Um, but I don't know. I'd, I, I'd have to, I think, or defer to a scientist to, uh, to measure our carbon impact uh, of, of that. I can, I can just hope that the net outcome of the research and the message of the film uh, at least uh, was commensurate with our carbon footprint or, you know, maybe better. Yeah, I mean, I can speak to that too. I just got back from expedition and it's slow. Like these are diesel ships and, yeah. you know, the way that we're dealing with waste, the way that, okay, finally we're actually off in disposable bottles, right? We're all carrying around our bottles. It is shifting, um, but it's a slow process. And yeah, being out there in these remote locations, um, it would be, you know, tough. Like the Franklin expedition with sales, it's a, it's a whole different uh, a whole different deal, right? Yeah. Well, and there are, you know, there, there have in recent years been very strong mandates now about ship discharge. I mean, there was zero discharge from our ship, uh, no wastewater, no, no food waste. I mean, nothing. Uh, and uh, I, I think that's fairly standard now, or at least working, uh, you know, within uh, confined, you know, near shore and so forth. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, there's there's some interesting research. I mean, it, and you would think uh, policing would be dif- difficult, but there are satellites above you in this whole region, and so, <laughs> right. uh, and that's so that's one of the UCSB's, you know, Sky Truth, and yeah, uh-huh. don't don't think you're not being watched out there because you uh, are. Interesting, yeah. Um, uh, Paige Hiller Adams asks, uh, "What can you tell us about the oceanographic results of the research done on the cruise?" Right. So I was in the microscopic communities um, group during the expedition. So we were looking at how plankton and zooplankton um, are being affected in their environment right now. So we're collecting a lot of different samples. I did thousand like our group did like over a thousand chlorophyll extractions. So you can imagine um, that takes quite a lot of time to process that data and we're waiting to hear a little bit uh, more about how we can continue to process that data once this COVID um, situation is, you know, settled. But um, yeah, so far for as, at least for that part or portion of our group, it's still being analyzed right now. And and I can say that you know the, the discovery of microplastics uh, was a a fairly major finding, and it has been reported in the news. I think it'll take some time to be peer reviewed and published. Uh, you know, typically uh, these expeditions, it takes a few years to get all the results out. Um, because this was supported by the National Science Foundation, it's all open source. So all the findings will be uh, available to the public. Um, and, I, and I do know, I can't really speak too much about it, but uh, um, Dong Lai Gong, who was studying the ocean currents and so forth, uh, was, he, he has studied quite a bit in the Western uh, Arctic and this was the first time that he'd studied in the, in the Eastern uh, Arctic and, and the uh, Canadian Arctic Archipelago. And he was quite impressed by the volume of freshwater melt from these glaciers. And that is impacting the temperature of the water, the water currents and so forth. Uh, I can't speak specifically, but I, I know that he was pretty, pretty amazed at the amount of freshwater melt that, that they were seeing. And he also, I know that his research interests are also in the the so-called Atlantification of the Arctic, um, about how the properties of the water are very different. One of the striking things about being in the Arctic for me was the smell, which had no hint of vegetal matter or rot or decay or any 
of the kind of earthy smells that I have encountered elsewhere. It, it's there was a kind of purity to it that um, kind of beggared description. Um, you just really had it. It it there was no hint of any nose of anything. Um, mm. I don't know what those terms actually mean, but, you know, the Atlantic water is thick with vegetal matter and other matter. It's, um, and, and it bears that it produces a kind of seawater smell that does not exist in the Arctic in the same way. It's an utterly and totally different. What we think of as the smell of the ocean does not smell like that in the Arctic. But as those waters increasingly Atlantify and, the, and warm, that's going to change as well. Yeah, and if I might add, um, just because you gave me that nice, I was visualizing the the time we were in the Arctic and the smell and everything. Um, that color of the ocean was just unbelievable. Never seen that color of blue. Can't even describe it. It is so rich and pure, um, you know, and seeing like the, the ice flows and seeing them sparkle and glitter and glisten. All of those different experiences is just so, it's so rich. Mm. Well, as we expected, the time flew by. That was such an incredible conversation. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk with you, Ian. Thank you. Yeah, it was really a pleasure. Thank you very much. Good night, everybody. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.